The scripture reading, if you want to follow along, is found in your bulletin. Let us pray first. Now, Heavenly Father, in your light we see light. So enlighten our minds and our souls. Give us insight to see your will and give us obedient hearts to do your will. Speak to us now, Lord, and help us to listen. Amen. I cry aloud to God and to God that he may hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God and I moan. I meditate and my spirit faints. You keep my eyelids from closing. I'm so troubled I cannot speak. I consider the days of old and remember the years of long ago. I commune with my heart in the night. I meditate and search my spirit. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all times? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And I say, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deeps trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this summer, we are studying how to pray based on the Psalms, and I am very grateful for the, the great team of preachers that we've had to help us with this over the past several weeks. And uh, last week, uh, Jeff shared a great quote uh, from Martin Luther that beautifully summarizes why uh, we're spending time in the Psalms. Uh, Luther said, whoever begins to pray the Psalms earnestly and regularly will soon take leave of light and personal little devotional prayers and say, ah, there is not the juice 
the strength, the passion, the fire, which you find in the Psalms. I love this. We're after the juice this summer. And so we're looking at another psalm today that has the juice, Psalm 77. And this is a psalm that teaches us how to pray through our anxieties and troubles. And you have to understand, this is a hard psalm for me to, to, to preach today. Uh, you know, I've just come off vacation. You know, so I, I, I can't say that I'm feeling super anxious right now, uh, but I know uh, that the usual pressures of life will soon come and nag at me. And I was reminded of a headline this week uh, from the great uh, satirical newspaper founded right here in Madison, uh, The Onion. And the headline read, Inspired Man Bolts Out of Bed at 3 a.m. to Jot Down Great New Worry. And the story went on. Quickly kicking off his sheets and reaching for a notepad on his nightstand, Local 27-year-old Kyle Dowling reportedly sprang out of bed at 3 a.m. yesterday to jot down an idea for a brand new worry. Sometimes the best, most crippling new anxieties just come to you in the middle of the night. So it's good to always have a pen and paper nearby to record them, said Dowling, rapidly scribbling several shorthand notes about a new feeling of debilitating self-doubt and apprehension that had just spontaneously entered his mind. If I think of a new paralyzing fear relating to my personal or professional life and don't immediately write it down, there's a good chance I'll just totally forget about it (laughs) by the time I fall asleep four hours later. Upon waking up and rereading his notes from the previous night, Dowling confirmed to reporters that the new worry was even greater than he first thought. I think we all know what this is like. And so did the author of Psalm 77. Uh, But the psalmist presents us with an alternative. We can meditate on our troubles, or we can meditate on God's deeds. And the promise is that when we do the latter, God meets us in his grace. So what do we learn from this psalm uh, today about how this works? And we can divide it into three parts. First, in verses 1 to 10, we see the boldness of a prayer like this. The psalmist is, is remarkably transparent and real as he faces his troubles. Second, in verses 11 to 15, we see the decisiveness of his praying as he calls to mind the, the deeds of the Lord. And finally, in verses 16 to 20, we see uh, his new experience of prayer as, as a deep grace is made known to him. So let's look at each one of these. The, the boldness of prayer in verses 1 to 10, the decisiveness of prayer in verses 16 to 20, and the experience of prayer in the end. Now first, let's consider the bold honesty of this psalmist. In the first verses, we find all the symptoms of an anxiety attack. Physically, uh, the psalmist is unable to sleep. His hand is stretched out without wearying. His eyes are are open in the night. His thoughts run on as he thinks about the past. Emotionally, uh, he moans. His spirit faints. Uh, He's so troubled that he cannot speak. But it's not just physical or or emotional. There's a spiritual dimension here. uh, He asks some very difficult questions in verses 9 and 10. 
will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? He fears that that God has rejected him. I take verse 10 to mean that he holds God uh, responsible for his situation. And I say, it is my grief, or better, it it makes me sick that the right hand of God, uh, the right hand of the Most High, has changed. In in the Bible, the the right hand of God usually protects and saves, uh, but the psalmist feels that God's hand has turned against him. I'm always amazed that we're given words like these to pray in the Bible. The Psalms don't give us uh, just some kind of religious language to make us spiritually impressive prayers. Instead, they give us permission to boldly admit our weaknesses and our struggles and our doubts. Not to wallow in these things, but in order to deal with them. Christians don't often allow themselves to pray like this. Somehow, we get the idea that pain, grief, and suffering are signs of weak faith. We tell ourselves, if only my faith was stronger, or or we ignore our feelings, or we just try and sing louder. We hide our pain from ourselves and others. I know this from my own uh, experience with grief. After my father passed away from bladder cancer in 2012, I thought the hard part was over. We had walked with him through his illness. I sat by his bedside as he died. Now it was time to move on, right? I gave myself a week for vacation. I led the funeral, and and I did just that. I, I moved on. But implicitly, what I was saying was... In order to be a person of faith, I have to stifle my sorrow. It wasn't until about a year later that I fell into a deep depression and with the help of a counselor, went back to learn how to grieve uh, this hard loss. It was kind of like that Pixar movie, Inside Out. Uh, You know this one? It tells the story of a girl who's moved with her family uh, from Minnesota to San Francisco And the movie mostly takes place inside of her head with these different parts played by the emotions of joy and disgust, sadness, fear, anger. And at one point in the movie, the character Joy uh, draws a circle for sadness on the floor and commands her, just stay inside the circle. Uh, But sadness refuses to stay inside the circle. And the scriptures are full of prayers, like Psalm 77, where sadness does not stay uh, where we want it to. But as we see in Job or, or Jeremiah or the Psalms that cry out, how long, O Lord, God welcomes our deepest emotions. He's not threatened by our accusations. You don't have to come to church and pretend like everything is okay when it's not. It's amazing. You can say, My soul refuses to be comforted. My spirit faints. 
So the psalmist is open, honest about his troubles, but, but let's also notice that he prays through his anxiety. He cries aloud to God. He seeks the Lord. He, he thinks of God. He believes even as he seeks understanding. We see this pattern throughout the Bible. Now, you're invited to bring your whole self into relationship with God. Even the parts that you'd like to pretend are not there. Even your doubts and your questions about God himself. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon used to say, take off your masks. The church was never meant to be a masquerade. This is the kind of attitude that Psalm 77 encourages us to have. But it doesn't stop there. It also shows us how to respond once we admit what is under the surface. In verses 11 to 15, we're given a model for how to deal with these deep emotions. The author is decisive in response to his trouble. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is so great is our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The first person verbs here are important. Uh, Calling to mind, remembering, meditating, musing. These are essential practices of the Christian life. There are basically two things here. Calling to mind and remembering on the one side, and meditating and, and musing on the other. Really, every person, no matter what you believe, practices these things. These are like breathing for human beings. You can pay attention to your breathing and control it, but, but when you don't pay attention, it's happening anyway. It's the same with our remembering and our, our meditating. In, in verses 1 to 10 of this psalm, the speaker is, is remembering and meditating, but he's, he's meditating on his troubles. In verses 11 to 15, he, he chooses to meditate on God's work and his mighty deeds. He deliberately refocuses his attention on what he knows and believes about God, God's ways and God's greatness. To remember God's works means to turn away from either the the internal or the, the external voices that seek to define us by other things, by our achievements or our appearance or our circumstances. Instead, in faith, you look outside yourself to the God who acts on behalf of the weak and the powerless and the helpless, the one who redeems from slavery and forgives and heals. To meditate means to work these truths into your soul. This takes deliberate effort to take time apart from the busyness and distractions of everyday life, to reorient ourselves to the God who loves us unconditionally. When I was a Boy Scout, I was taught to make a fire by laying down kindling first. Thin pieces of wood that can catch fire quickly and then in turn light the the larger logs. Sometimes in our spiritual lives, we want great spiritual experiences when we have not laid down any kindling. Meditating on the deeds of the Lord is like kindling for our spiritual lives. And I don't know how you can do this 
uh, without regularly reading the Bible. As you make the deliberate decision to call to mind God's faithfulness in the midst of your worries and fears, you discover that God is still in control, even when everything seems to be going out of control. The Apostle Paul calls this the shield of faith in the the armor of God passage in Ephesians 6. Take up the shield of faith, he says, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. In Colossians, he says, set your minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Let me offer an illustration of of the kind of deliberate action that I'm talking about uh, from C.S. Lewis's Narnia book, The The Silver Chair. In this story, uh, two children from our world and a a Narnia creature named Puddleglum, the Marsh Wiggle, go looking for a long-lost prince of Narnia. And they finally find him in an underground world ruled by a horrible witch. She puts an enchantment on them uh, using a magic fire that makes them more and more drowsy, convincing them that all their experience of the overworld was a fantasy. And finally, in in a great act of heroism, Puddleglum stamps out the fire with his bare foot and wakes them all up. And then he speaks these words to the witch. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one thing more to be said, even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things. Trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one, and that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world, I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and the young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives, our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world is dull a place as you say. Puddleglum says... He's on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan. But for Christians, of course, it matters if God actually exists, if the gospel is true. This brings us to the final verses of Psalm 77. Because here is where the kindling bursts into flame. Verses 16 to 20. When the waters saw you, O God... When the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters. 
yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is my, my favorite part of uh, this psalm. The psalm here takes on a, a very different character. This is all imagery uh, from the Exodus out of Egypt. Uh, from Exodus 15 and from elsewhere. Uh, but the psalmist is not just remembering God's redemption at this point. It's as if he is experiencing the Exodus himself. He feels the water. He hears the crash of the thunder. He sees the brightness of the lightning. I think it's, it's very likely that Psalm 77 is the result of someone meditating on the Exodus story until it became alive to them in a new way. And their faith went from black and white to IMAX 3D. They, they experienced the Exodus as they remembered what God had done in the past, as they meditated on what it meant for their own life and for God's faithfulness to them, as they applied the truths of God's grace to their own situation. The psalm stands as a testimony. The Lord met me in this place of doubt, suffering, anxiety, and fear. And he will meet you too. Even though his footsteps are unseen, you can trust him to be your shepherd. In the person and work of Jesus, Christians look back on an even greater exodus. In his death and resurrection, Jesus leads us out of sin and death. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. As this psalm teaches us, Christians don't deny their anxieties or fears. You can speak about them openly, knowing that God's power is made perfect in weakness. But then you can call to mind the deeds of the Lord and meditate on what he has done for you. If you believe that the Son of God became a human being for you, that he died for you, that, that he is risen for you, then no matter what struggle you may face, you can be confident in his love. Notice that the final verses of the psalm combine two powerful images of God. On the one hand, he's the all-powerful creator for whom the earth and the, ski, the seas and the skies serve at his command. And he's the gentle shepherd who leads his people like a flock. For many, this is the classic problem of evil. In the face of, of evil, it seems that God must be uh, all-powerful, uh, but not good enough to want to prevent things that are wrong, or uh, he's all good, but not powerful enough to stop evil. Christians say that both are true, that God is all-powerful, and he's all good, and he's all loving. So how do we reconcile this God with the tragedy and abuse and injustice that we experience in this world? The psalm today and, and the whole Bible tell us two things. First, that the God who is great and transcendent enough for us to be angry at, to question, like we've heard here today in this psalm, that this God is also great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing things that are wrong to continue, even if we don't understand why. And second, even though we may not know why God allows suffering to continue, 
Christians can be clear about one thing. It's not because he doesn't care. He's not indifferent to our problems. The gospel tells us that God takes our suffering so seriously that he's willing to get involved himself. On the cross, Jesus suffered with us. If this is true, you can pray like Psalm 77. You can bring your deepest pain to God and trust that he will not turn you away. You can call to mind his ultimate faithfulness and his love. And you can ask him, uh, even today, to give you a personal experience of his love. In the words of 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And if this is true, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the models that we see in the scriptures like this that show us the, the authenticity, the transparency, the openness with which we can come to you with even the hardest things that are on our hearts and to bring them to you. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to do that, uh, to uh, open up even to ourselves our need uh, for comfort and for healing. And as we, as we remember your deeds, as we meditate on their truth and apply them to our lives, uh, would you give us grace uh, to experience the kinds of transformation that you promise us in Christ, to know that he is risen from the dead, that he is reigning in heaven, and that he is in control of all things, and so we can trust him with the whole of our lives. Uh, would you bless us by your grace to do that and to witness uh, to your love in this world? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.